Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. I thank you for all those who could be here this morning. I pray for all those who are not able to be with us this morning, whether uh, because of sickness or uh, recovery from surgery or um, for, for multiple other reasons. I pray that you would minister to them this morning as well. That we would all be worshiping together in the Holy Spirit. I thank you for your word. You are not a God uh, that just exists and we have to do everything we can to try to appease you, try to get on your good side. But you have provided us with your word that reveals who you are, what your truth is, what your goodness is, what your way to be with you for eternity is, the only way. I thank you that we can turn to it, that it is our food every single day, and turn to it in our hardest and darkest of times. I thank you that it speaks to us no matter what season we are in. Because they are your words coming to us. I thank you for your Holy Spirit within us, enlightening us to understand what we're reading. So that we may answer your call as the good shepherd and become one of your sheep. Pray that you bless our time this morning, that your spirit would go forth. And that our, our, we would walk out of here a little bit different than when we came in here. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The following, a couple of, couple of stories, are strange events that didn't necessarily change the entire course of human and world history, but are strange historical events nonetheless. Before he was a Roman politician, and well before he was a self-crowned emperor, Julius Caesar was a captain in the Roman military. In 75 BC, when he was 25 years old, Caesar was captured by pirates that were roaming the Mediterranean Sea. When the pirates set his ransom at 20 Roman talents, which was a form of currency back then, Caesar was deeply offended. He got really angry and demanded that they up it to 50 talents. <laughs> Caesar then even sent his entourage, his supporting group out, to go gather the ransom themselves and bring it back to pay the pirates and buy his freedom. During the 38 days he was captured, Caesar proved to be quite the headache of a prisoner. He would boss the pirates around, yell at them to hush when he wanted to sleep, and force them to listen to the speeches and poems he wrote. <laughs> he even told the pirates that when he went free, he was going to find them and kill them all. <laughs> I think the pirates were perhaps somewhat regretting their decision at that point. Finally, Caesar's group returned with the ransom money. Caesar went free, raised up a small military force, found the pirates, captured them, and when the local government where they were captured couldn't make up their mind about what to do with them, Caesar made good on his promise and killed them all himself. After surviving the French and Indian War, the entire American Revolutionary War, and eight years as the first president of the United States, the cause of George Washington's death at 67 is as surprising as it is anticlimactic. The man even survived smallpox, tuberculosis, malaria, and pneumonia. 
But one day, Washington was riding around Mount Vernon on his horse during a very cold, rainy, and miserable day, one that he no doubt lived through all of his life. But this time, with one exception. Instead of changing out of his soaking wet clothes as he normally would, Washington chose to stay in them so he wouldn't be late for dinner. This move proved to be his downfall. That night, Washington woke up, woke up his wife to tell her he could barely breathe or talk on his own. The doctors tried the height of what was medical knowledge for the late 1700s, gargling with a mixture of molasses, vinegar, and butter, eating dead beetles, and had 40% of his blood drained out of him. Nothing worked. Washington died three days later, and to this day, doctors are perplexed as to what infection actually killed him. Like I said, while hardly dramatically changing the course of human history, these are surprising twists in history that no one would have seen coming at the time. As Jesus continues, one of the most famous parables he ever told and one of the most famous accounts in all of scripture, that of him as the good shepherd, his symbolic story takes a surprising twist. One that I doubt most of, if any, Jesus's listeners would have seen coming. But not only is it shocking, it is the most important and crucial part of this parable. And that's what we'll be talking about today. As we turn back to this parable again this morning, we've already set up the basic players in it. That is that Jesus is the good shepherd and that he's the only door for anyone to become a part of his flock. That's one. The ultimate thief and robber is Satan and his demonic forces, whose only goal is to destroy the pinnacle of God's creation, humanity, both in promoting their earthly death and in taking as many of them with him to the lake of fire after judgment day. The Pharisees were acting in the same spirit as Satan, leading those who they were supposed to be leading into the truth of faith in God away from that and only emphasizing strict adherence to the Mosaic law and thus leading people towards destruction and death. And we'll see one more type of person in connection with sheep that Jesus also connects to the Pharisees in our verses this morning. But at this point, let's pick this parable back up in verse 11. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 10. Uh, we're going to pick back up in verse 11. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 10 uh, or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. Uh, but John chapter 10, verse 11, we read, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Here in this verse, Jesus sets up for the rest of what he'll say in this section of the parable. This is the introductory sentence. What he reveals here is at the base level, not all that out of the ordinary for shepherds. Once evening fell in this area, there were all sorts of dangers that wanted to steal or kill sheep. One biblical scholar listed all the animal predators that, that shepherds had to contend with. Lions, wolves, jackals, panthers, leopards, bears, and hyenas. All of them roamed the countryside of Palestine looking for sheep to kill and eat. Then there were the human ones to contend with. 
Men who would attack a shepherd to steal all the sheep or kill one for food. You remember last week how I mentioned that multiple shepherds would keep multiple flocks of sheep in one sheep pen at night, especially in the winter. This was for the sheep's protection, but it was also for the shepherd's protection. Thieves and robbers would be less keen to attack a shepherd when there were several other ones there to protect one another. But how does Jesus present himself as a singular shepherd and as the singular shepherd who even lies down in the door as the gate to the pen itself? The only way to get into the flock was through him. And the only way to mess with the sheep that are a part of his flock means you have to mess with him first. And so quite literally, shepherds would put their lives at risk every night for the protection of their sheep. But the way Jesus phrases it here means much, much more than that. The common shepherd would put their life at risk for their sheep every night, but their goal by morning was also to make it through the night. But Jesus says here in verse 11 that he willingly lays down his life for the sheep. And that's the first surprising twist in this parable. One might be listening to Jesus' parable at this point, both then and now, and wonder, well, how is that going to help the sheep? If the good shepherd gives up his life for the sheep, as you say, then he'll be dead. And the sheep will still be as good as dead. But as we'll see, it's only through the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep that will be the only thing, the first half of it anyway, that will save those sheep. It will be the only event that will ultimately save those sheep from their death and from their ultimate predator, Satan. But first, Jesus contrasts himself as sacrificial, selfless, as a sacrificial, selfless shepherd who cares only about the sheep. And he contrasts that with those who don't give a care at all about the sheep and only care about themselves, verses 12 through 13. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Now we have the luxury of being able to look back on this with the revelation of the Holy Spirit and in its immediate context with all the study tools we have today, we can clearly see that Jesus is once again contrasting himself with the Pharisees here. The Pharisees being the hired hands who didn't care about the sheep. Again, they were the ones who were supposed to be the ones in charge of the spiritual state of the, t of the people. But they had abandoned that a long time ago to focus on their own self-righteousness, to force others to do the same, to look down on those who didn't and promote that self-righteous following of the Mosaic Law, promote that if you have a self-righteous following of the Mosaic Law, that's what got you into heaven. In addition to the current Pharisees, as one biblical scholar noted, there were multiple others who had a hand in governing the flock of God's people, but who also abandoned the truth of God for selfishness. How many kings were there over Israel where the Bible refers to them as 
And so and so did even more evil in the eyes of God than his father did. And so and so rebuilt all the altars to Baal and rebuilt the Asherah poles on the high places. It seems like as you're going through the list of kings, it's every single one. There's only a handful that didn't do that. Then there were false prophets and false messiahs that popped up and led the people away from God and towards destruction. There were a lot of what could be labeled as hired hands, who at the very first sign of trouble, because they couldn't have cared less about leading God's people in his truth, and thus protecting them and providing for them spiritually, they just took off. They took off and left the sheep of the people of God completely exposed to the attacks of Satan for hundreds of years. By contrast, Jesus is the only shepherd willing to give his life and not just give it, but willingly sacrifice it for the sheep's protection and spiritual provision. And because Jesus cares so deeply for the sheep, there is a deep spiritual connection between the two of them. Verses 14 through 15. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, we might just skim over this from time to time and think, that's nice. Jesus knows me as a sheep, and I know him as my shepherd. And that's about where it ends in our thinking process about that. But if we stop and think about it, there's a very, very profound truth located here. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, let's start with the relationship described in verse 15. What relationship is described there? The relationship within the Trinity of God, right? Between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus has already described that relationship that he has with God the Father for the past five chapters. All boiled down, it's a perfect connection to love for, and communication between one another. If you think of the most connected, loving, open communicative relationship that, that could exist, it would be even more perfect than that. Because our finite human minds can only think so far. And that relationship between God the Father and God the Son and God the Son and God the Father is the example of the relationship that Jesus has with us as his sheep, as he knows us perfectly, and he wants us to have that same relationship with him. It's spending time with him in prayer and in reading of his word, what he wants to reveal to us about himself. And Jesus also said, if you love me, obey my commandments. As we know what's in God's word and we seek to follow and obey it and show our love for Jesus, we'll grow closer to him each day through that as well. And like we talked about last week, the deeper and bigger our relationship with Jesus through his Holy Spirit grows, 
And the more we want to live our lives solely for the glory of God, a byproduct of that will be the peace and contentment in this life that we crave the most as humans. And it's the peace and contentment that only God can give us. It's a relationship unlike anything we can possibly have with another mere human. And it's the most powerful, most loving, most fulfilling, most transformative, and most peace-filled one we could ever possibly imagine. And more! But we would have no hope for any of this unless two things happened. Number one, as Jesus has already stated, that he would willingly lay down his life for the sheep. And number two, unless you have Jewish blood in you already, or have a past with Judaism already, we would still be completely hopeless if it weren't for what Jesus says next in verse 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Let that sink in for a second. These other sheep, of course, are the Gentiles, such as myself, whose only hope for salvation is especially hinged on the mercy and grace of God. This is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 49.6. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servants. This is God the Father speaking to Jesus to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. That's too small of a thing. What I'm going to do is I will also make you a light of the nations to the Gentiles, to the entire world, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Amen? Where the, where the leaders of Israel horribly failed, and where the nation of Israel hor horribly failed, and being the light to the Gentile world, and making them want the relationship with Yahweh that they had had, Jesus would be the victor as God's servant in doing just that. Where Israel itself failed to be the light to the world, Jesus himself would be the light of the entire world. That was always God's plan, as we see right here in this prophecy, to draw the Gentiles to himself. The plan to Israel was for them to do that, and then they were to see that they failed horribly at it, and that the only hope for salvation for any person, both Jewish and Gentile in background, is Jesus alone as the good shepherd. Jesus would add the Gentile flock to the Jewish flock, and together they would be one flock with one shepherd. That's the unity of what's referred to as the universal church. That is, everyone in the world who actually calls Jesus both Savior and Lord with their lives in repentance, no matter where on earth they live. And we see in Revelation that there are people from every tribe, nation and language represented before the throne of God. In this world of division, whether it be racial, ethnic, political, socioeconomical, or anything else, the universal church of Jesus Christ is to be the light of unity 
People from all walks of life, bought with the blood of Christ and bound together with the Spirit and love of the Holy Spirit. In the way Israel was supposed to be to the rest of the world, as we are the body of Christ, let us seek to be good ambassadors of unity through Jesus to a world rocked with division, war, and pain. But here... Jewish or Gentile in background is the only way and reason that any of us are able to be a part of Jesus' flock of sheep with him as our shepherd. And this, again, in connection with our opening illustrations, is another shocking twist that no one saw coming. Verses 17 through 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that... I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Don't you love those words? All right, what does all of this mean? This in parable form is actually a huge piece of theology having to do with Jesus at this point impending death and resurrection. As noted by one biblical scholar, when Jesus says that the Father loves him because he lays down his life for the sheep, he doesn't mean that the Father only loves Jesus because of this, but that there is a special kind of love that only the Father and the Son share because of Jesus' commitment to what will be happening to him soon. Furthermore, what verses 17 through 18 teach us is this. Jesus, even before he would be crucified, months before he would be crucified, is declaring that he was laying down his life on his own initiative and on his own terms. We've already read several times how his own people attempted to stone him to death or throw him off a cliff. But because it wasn't God's timing yet, it didn't actualize. But when it was the evening and day that both encompassed both views of Passover at the time, when he would be falsely accused and put to death by crucifixion, all fulfilling prophecy that had been given hundreds of years before, then it was time. And contrary to the theories of a lot of people walking around this earth that Jesus didn't actually die, which is scientifically impossible due to the circumstances, or that Jesus was killed by the Jews, or that he got too big for his britches and got what any threat to the Roman government would get, Jesus gave up his life willingly. He could have gotten away and not actually died, but his love for and obedience to the Father and his love for us drove him to follow through with all of it. Furthermore, as one biblical scholar points out, if Jesus was a sinner, like any other human, he would have simply died as any other human, if not by execution, then by illness or natural death. But it's because he's sinless that he had the distinct opportunity in the first place of willingly laying down his life at all. 
And as scripture says that every person is sinful and earthly death is a consequence for that sin. The fact that this points to Jesus' sinlessness and possibility of willingly laying down his life at all. What are these statements also declaring? That Jesus is not merely a human, imperfect, and sinful. He is also God. What else does this teach us about the death and resurrection of Jesus? That just as Jesus has the authority to lay down his life because he is God and can determine when that would be based on the Father's plan, he has the same exact authority to take back up his life again. So in theological understanding, by way of biblical scholarship, both the Father and the Son were involved in his resurrection. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul says here that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Earlier in this gospel, Jesus himself says, destroy this temple, meaning his body, and in three days I will raise it up. And here Jesus is claiming that he has the authority given to him by the Father's command to raise himself up from the dead. Why is this important? Because Jesus is the only being to ever be both fully human and fully God. But in what we're talking about here, we're referencing his full humanity. The only full human being to raise himself from the dead. God had raised people from the dead through the prophets, and Jesus would very soon raise Lazarus from the dead, but Jesus was the first and only human to raise himself from the dead. What does that mean for us as his sheep, whether Jewish or Gentile in background? That Jesus willingly laid down his life in order to pay for a debt he had not incurred, the death debt of our sin, and rose himself from the dead to show his complete and thorough victory and authority over both physical and spiritual death. That's everything to us. And that's our everything. So not only did Jesus pay the debt for our sin that we had no hope of paying with his death, but with his life, he proved his authority over the only fate we had awaiting us, that of complete earthly death and it staying that way, and that of the second death or hell. It is only because of Jesus' authority over the second death or hell that we can come to him in repentance of our sin and ask him for forgiveness from it through his paying for its debt and taking his life as the authority as king over the rest of our lives. When we do that in prayer to him, only because of his authority over the second death, Jesus grants us the gift of being res rescued from that and rescued to eternal life with him. But it's only based on his authority through the Father's command. It's only because 
of Jesus' authority over the second death, that we can be rescued from it. We don't somehow automatically escape it because we never killed anyone. That's where we're headed. That's where we're all headed if we don't recognize Jesus' authority over it and ask him to save us from it by way of repenting from our sin and recognizing his authority as king over the rest of our lives. Romans 6.23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death. Both deaths, both earthly death and the second death. But, but, <laughs> that's the best three-letter word right there. But, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus' authority over death also extends to our physical, earthly death as well. Some of you know this already but some of you may not. According to the Bible, what happens when we die? If we die before Jesus comes back at the rapture. Scripture tells us that when we take our last breath here on earth and our physical body dies, our soul goes to immediately be in the presence of Jesus. We don't know the extent of our consciousness in his presence, but we know that there is a state of consciousness. We know we're with him, and we know he's keeping us safe. Paul writes this, Therefore, being always of good courage, this is something that's supposed to give us boldness and courage in this life, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. But Paul knows there's work for him still left to do. But what we see here is there, a, there is a distinct difference between our soul being at home in our physical bodies or being with the Lord. And how this is written is that there is an either-or logical relationship here in other words if our soul is in our body then we're not at home with the lord but if our soul is not in the home of our body then we are at home with the lord during the tribulational period of the end times of the world we read this description of those who are martyr martyred for their faith and i saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Where are those souls? Those souls are in heaven. So when a believer dies or a child who has not yet reached an age of accountability, our soul immediately goes to be with Jesus because of his authority over the second death. Then one day, Jesus will bring back to the skies of this world all these souls he's been keeping safe all these thousands of years. Raise up their bodies from death, transform them into glorified perfected, recognizable bodies, and reunite our souls with those new bodies. Those believers who are still alive at that point, 
will also be given glorified, perfected, recognizable bodies. And if you're wondering where in the world I got all of that, look up 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. Well, what is also included in 1 Corinthians 15, as noted by one biblical scholar, is that the same body Jesus rose again from the dead with is the first fruits of, and so will be the same type of body we will be given for all of eternity. The image of first fruits was an agricultural term to describe how the first of a crop's harvest would indicate how the rest of the crop would be, how the rest of the crop would taste, etc. So if you want to get a bit of an idea of what kind of body we'll get at the rapture, look up the descriptions in the Gospels about how Jesus was post-resurrection. When an unbeliever dies... This is the cold, hard truth that's hard for us to swallow. When an unbeliever dies, the Bible tells us their soul goes to a temporary holding place of torment called Hades until the great white throne judgment when their bodies are also resurrected, but resurrected to be judged and thrown into the lake of fire for eternity. That's found in Revelation 20. In either case, what we need to see here this may be, you may be hearing this for the very first time in your life. There is no place of limbo. There's no purgatory. There is no middle state where the dead can roam the world as ghosts or communicate with the living. None of that is canonically biblical, is based on wrong theology, and is flat out lies. But Satan and his demons know these fears and misunderstandings of humans and exploit, exploit their fears by manifesting themselves as what are interpreted as ghosts, aliens, or other apparitions. Why? To lead people away from the truth of Jesus' gospel. What we need to see, especially in connection with this morning's passage, is that Jesus is the ultimate authority with his authority over his death and resurrection and our eternity is completely based on accepting that authority for ourselves or not. For those who have answered Jesus's call as the good shepherd to become a part of his flock and have come to him in prayer at a certain point in your life, repenting or turning from your sin, turning to him based on his death and resurrection on your behalf and taking his authority as king over the rest of your life. That authority of Jesus is what alone gives us the hope that death is never anything to be feared. Never. Even if the worst thing that could happen to us in this life happens, and what is that? That we lose loved ones to death and that we die. Even the worst thing that happens in this life is simply the door of the sheep pen out to the green pastures of eternity. And we have the full assurance that Jesus himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Especially in this world of chaos and so many unknowns. And as we talked about a little at Monday's men's Bible study, in this world where Satan and the unseen demonic realm is making themselves 
less and less unseen and more and more seen. And in a world where there are wars and rumors of wars and complete collapse of society as we know it, we can have the overwhelming and everlasting peace of God. None of that, none of what could happen in this world changes Jesus' authority over his death, over his resurrection, and over the second death. And none of that changes Jesus' authority over our lives, our deaths, our resurrections, and our eternal life. He is our good shepherd. He laying down his life and then taking it back up again is our only foundation and hope. Our good shepherd wants to have a deep, thriving, growing relationship with us through prayer, his word, and his movement of the Holy Spirit within us. That hope through the Holy Spirit and glorifying the Father is the only source of our God-given peace. And while we wait for our souls to be with Jesus, as Paul wrote about, we know we have a lot of work to do still in this earth. To build his kingdom here on earth and to share the message of his salvation, truth, and authority with others in his love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for all that is wrapped up in one of the most famous parables and portions of Scripture. I pray that if there's anybody here who has not yet answered the call of the Good Shepherd, has not yet come to you in prayer, repenting of their sin, taking you as a Savior from that sin, based on your death and resurrection, and then taking your authority for all of who you are as King over the rest of their lives, I pray they would do that right now. And Lord, there may be some of us who have let our relationship with the Good Shepherd fade away a little bit, slip, go by the wayside a little bit. Lord, I pray that this would be the, the drive that, that, that brings us back to you because we know that you're going after the one. You leave the 99 to come after the one, and we thank you so much for that. Let us stop running from you and, and yield ourselves up to you because we know that only in your flock with that deep, thriving, growing relationship with you, only in your sheep pen, only by going in and out through you as the door will we have those green pastures and still waters. I pray that we would use this to glorify you with our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.